Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Curlin. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of a three-part series on public and private events with our guest, Dr. Joe Lang. In part one, Joe talked about Helen Keller, who became both blind and deaf after an illness when she was just 19 months old. Without language, she had no sense of self. It's through language, Joe argues, that we become aware that we are aware. And without language, animals lack consciousness. For many of us, that's a very controversial and disturbing statement, but we're going to explore it in more depth in parts two and three. So in part two, Joe began by holding up his coffee mug and describing it for us. He said, it's a black cup, it's got a handle, I can tell you a whole bunch of stuff about it. So Joe was holding up the cup, and since we're on Zoom, I could see the mug he was holding up. But none of you listening can see the mug. You have to imagine what his mug looks like. We can't see that you're seeing Joe's mug, but we couldn't see that you're seeing it even if the mug was sitting right in front of you. So Joe asks, what makes one a public event and the other a private event? So in one, there's a mug in front of you, and we would say that's a public event. And in another, the mug is absent, but you are imagining the mug. And Joe would argue that there is no difference except in how that scene came to be. In other words, it's the stimulus control. The occasion for scene is under the control of the presence of a mug in one situation, and in another, it's the under the control of the presence of instructions. So here's another example that Joe used. Suppose you see the word strength written on a computer screen. You can see the word, but now suddenly the screen goes blank. You can still visualize the word strength. You know how to spell it. And if somebody asks you to spell strength, your spelling repertoire is going to kick in and let you spell strength without needing to see it on the screen. If I asked any of you right now to spell strength, you could do it. But now suppose, with the screen blank and nothing in front of you, suppose I ask you to spell strength backwards. You're going to find that's much harder. But if you truly had the image of the word in your head, if your private event meant that there was something akin to the computer screen that you could access, you would be able to spell strength backwards. So Joe is arguing and using these examples and other studies to argue that seeing 
and hearing and memory and these other things and, and imagining that that isn't in the stimulus. It's in the relation of the organism to its environment. So what Joe is saying is we make a mistake when we assume private experience is simply private behavior or private stimuli. And he argues that actually covert behavior like this doesn't exist. In other words, we have behavior that is under the control of stimuli in our environment, and we have an experience that goes along with it that we call seeing, that we call hearing, and so forth. And that's part of the relationship, as he puts it. It's part of the relationship that is brought to us by our good friend evolution. And the experience of seeing and hearing and feeling and acting and so on are part of the discriminative repertoires that emerge as a function of the contingencies that are shaping our behavior. So at the end of part two, Dominique brought us back to the statement that Joe made in part one that animals do not have consciousness, which for many of us is a real gut punch because we very much believe that our animals have a rich emotional life and are aware of their emotions and are aware of themselves. So we're going to ask again, what is consciousness? And that's where we'll pick up as we rejoin the conversation. So I want to try and bring this somehow back to animals because you talk about private events and you talk about consciousness. So you kind of told us, you, you, you didn't kind of, you told us that animals don't have consciousness. They're not uh -huh. aware that they're aware, but they but do have private events. But let's it's back not... up. But let's back up. What I'm saying is that people don't have private experience either. That's different from public experience. The experiences they have are just differentiated by the stimulus control over those experiences. In other words, there is no private versus public. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist. We use that as a form of communication, of telling people what's going on when they ask, what are you doing? <laughs> right? You're not saying, oh, I'm under the control of instructional control over, over my behavior scene. No, you say, I'm imagining. So there isn't a private event per se. The experience is in the relation to our environment, right? In terms of the contingency relation, the occasion behavior consequence relation to our environment, that's where the experience is, whether it's in the presence of the stimulus or of per se, or in the absence of the stimulus, but under the control of other stimuli that are in the environment. So to study the difference in what we call private and public isn't discover isn't the difference between private and public event. It's the difference in stimulus control. So in the case of animals, if you want to know what their experience is, you would study the stimulus control over their behavior. What stimuli do they respond to? What sequences can they respond to? What's happening? That will tell you, can they respond to, to 
in in ways that they respond as though the stimulus were there. Can you construct contextual stimuli within the absence of a stimulus so that the animal respond as if the stimulus is there? And you know, in a certain sense, they do. In other words, if you're out probably riding the horse and they hear a sound, and that sound has been some type of threat before, right? It may be that they hear what's going on, you know, it might restrict responsible terms to the extent that that threat is what they hear, mm-hmm. rather than just that rustling of the leaves or whatever. So it's, I would, I would, I would bet, and there may be even experiments on it, I would bet that we could get demonstrations that they can respond to stimuli in the absence of things heard or seen. I, that's why I think to a certain extent, there's certain types of dreaming that probably goes on with animals. Well, we right? see them dream. I mean, they you see their legs going like this when they dream. Oh, we, right. We assume they're dreaming. <laughs> We're we assuming. Them. And this is I, why I was I, I was and, uh, thinking, but, oh, this podcast, we're finally going to have access to what's going on in our animals. Right. And and we do by studying the stimulus control. That's the beauty of it. It's not within, we found out that it's not within the animal. It's not within the human either. It's in the relation to the environment. And by studying that, we have access. That's how we get access. By studying the relation of the organism to its environment. That's how we get access. There is there is no difference in access, public or private. No difference. Again, even in the most public stimuli, we don't have access to how you're seeing something the way I'm seeing it. My experience is part of that relation. That's only going to be my experience. It's never going to be available to anyone else. And so the- I think one of the most interesting chapters in the immense world is the one on pain. On pain? On pain. You know, the whole question of who- do do animals feel pain? Are they aware mm-hmm. of their pain? And they're that's making... a different question. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Do they feel pain, or are they aware of the feeling of pain? That's yeah. that's a what that's is a pain? Question. What you know? What is pain? And one of the distinctions that he was making, and I'm not going to get the names right in terms of how he was referring to them, but there's the stimulation of various receptor cells, which is not pain, It's which is not what we would call the awareness that you, that you hurt. And one of the ways that they were demonstrating the difference in this is they would expose an animal to something that, that was creating a a, a reaction. They would pull back. They would pull away. They would give an electric shock. They would put some acid, inject some acid into their skin. And one of the one of the ways that they were looking at in the experiments is the animals could choose. They could go to a section of the tank that mm-hmm. was that they would normally spend time in that was more diverse, or they could go to a tank that where there was very little in the environment that they would not normally choose this 
this type of environment, but there were painkillers that were put into the water. And so they were going to the section of the tank where they had access to painkillers. Well, they're painkillers because we call them painkillers, but they are, yes. are, are neuron attenuators. Yes. In other words, they stop the, they stop the receptors from transmitting the same signal that they would without the without the chemical in the water. Right. So but, it's not necessarily anything to do with pain. In other words, of in other words, they're not addressing pain. The painkillers don't have anything to do with pain. Painkillers change how the nervous system responds to stimuli. Which is what you've been saying. Isn't right. It? So pain is is the when we say pain, it's the descriptor we use for the changes in those uh, neurological functions, right? Right. And so this is this is the this is the issue that we begin to assume when we use words like pain, is that it's a thing. Yes. Rather than a descriptor of of a set of relations, pain is a descriptor of a set of relations that. The use of the term has multiple functions. So you can hypnotize someone, tell them you won't feel a thing. I can pull your tooth out, you won't even feel it. If you're really susceptible to the hypnosis. Right. How's that possible? That's all instruction. Right? There's been experiments where people have done things where they put them under hypnosis and they create painful events and have them watch a clock. And say, okay, here is it this time and at this point in time. Okay, and this point in time. Do you feel anything? No. This point in time? No, no, no. They take the hypnosis instruction off of them and they say, okay, one o'clock. Oh my God, that hurt. So exactly the times when they presented the stimulus, like a little poke. Man, they could tell you exactly what time that occurred and that it hurt like God, even though they didn't responded when they're under hypnosis and no pain. So these things, these relations to the environment and the instructional control that can be brought under, people, behavior can be brought under, is what needs to be studied. That's where these things uh, reside. Right. It's in these relations. Uh, there's an experiment done, uh, not with pain, but with, are you familiar with the Stroop effect? The Stroop effect, I'll explain it, it's very easy. Okay. Um, I take a, a, a series of, like I could present on the screen, like little squares of color. Okay. Green, red, blue, yellow, you know, right? You know, just basic colors. And I ask you to name the colors as fast as you can. And so I'm looking at getting the lowest latency. So red, yellow, blue, red, blue, 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 purple, purple, green. And I'm, so I'm saying them as fast as they come on the screen, right? Yeah. Fast as they can. I say, I want you to do the exact same thing, new sets of stimuli, only this time, but name the color now. Name the color. But I'll have the word G-R-E-E-N in red. Yes. Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> You'll look at it, and it'll flash up. you go, I'm, I'm red. Yeah. It'll totally disrupt responding. That's called the Stroop effect. Yes. Where a 
high a low latency behavior will disrupt a greater latency behavior. And they've done experiments where they've taken complete neutral stimuli and had people learn to respond to them really rapidly and then have them paired with other stimuli that they didn't respond to as rapidly. And it they couldn't withhold their response to the fast, the, the fast response. So it disrupted the slower response. And then you take the stimulus that's slower and now drive that down so the reaction time is less and you can reverse the effect. So it was this, it was called a continuum of automaticity. It was published in 1988, this paper on this. Dunbar, Dunbar and McCoy, Dunbar, I think it was. Dunbar and McCoy. I, I don't forget the names right now, but it was in 1988. Pretty cool. So these experimenters at Yale did an interesting experiment. They found people who were very susceptible to Stroop effect. They showed big differences. You know, same same thing. But they also were showed high suggestibility for hypnosis. So they hypnotized. And they gave them a post-hypnotic suggestion that we're going to run the same experiment again. Only this time the words are going to be in Russian, <laughs> not, not in English. So when you saw the word G-R-E-E-N, and it was in red, you know, green, the word green would disrupt saying red. So now it would be Russian word. So the Russian word for green, right? Yes. You can't read it, no Russian. So under Russian words, you wouldn't expect to see much of a di disruption. No, you wouldn't. They told them they're going to present these in Russian. And of course, they didn't. They pronounced them in English, but oh. there was no disruption. Because the instruction was, you see, they're in, they're in Russian. Oh. <laughs> so they completely abolished the Stroop effect, showing that it was conflicting instructional control, not dimensional control. The word, the letter G-R-E-E-N were still there. Hmm. Now they had no effect because they were told the words are in Russian. So does that <laughs> bring us to the conclusion that there is no reality? The reality is that it's the relation of the organism to its environment it's is determined by the contingencies is what the reality is. Which is, and, and I think Dominique alluded to that, which is really very good news because at the end of the day, we can then say, well, we can create our own reality. Exactly right. That we do not have to actually simply accept the reality we're in. Right. And that's how we can you know, have a change in attitude. Have the same events going on, but no, now we're behaving entirely different to it. Well, what we're saying is we've changed the structural control, right? Yep. And so on. So you can approach it from a variety of aspects, as long as you understand that all of these things are emotions, our sensations, if you will, the, what we see and hear, both publicly and privately, are all a function of these contingency relations. And we can pull them together now. We can look at the neurological basis of these would make more sense if we if the people looking at them understood this a little bit more. Mm. They don't. They're still caught under this notion that there's an image in there or there's a, a neurological correlate that's being paired with something else that is happening, this and that. Right. You know, and the, that there's uh, music in the in the needle. Right. That there's music yeah. in the needle. And that, you know, if I you know, I think uh, the dog ran down the street, the dog ran down the street, the dog ran down the street over and over again. 
I get a consistent brainwave pattern for engaging in the dog ran down the street, the behavior of hearing that and they're under instructional control. The dog ran down the street, the dog ran down the street, the dog ran down the street, right? I'm getting a certain neurological pattern. So then they say, I'm thinking something, and I think the dog ran down the street, and they say, ah, there's a neurological, see, he was thinking dog ran down the street. <laughs> and it's like, wait, all you've done is say, <laughs> you know, all you've done is to identify consistent brainwave patterns under instructional control that are engendered when certain types of instructional control are put in place. You're not listening in to my thoughts. So the, so, you know, when you say, when they move a cursor up a screen by thinking up, 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 well, it could, you could be thinking down, 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 down. If every time you thought down, the cursor went up, <laughs> you know, there's no correlation between it. it's in other words, the, the, uh, the electrical firings under those conditions are just simply operants under the under stimulus control. And the, what you're thinking is irrelevant. It could be anything that resulted in a consistent uh, neural activity. So all you're looking at is for consistent neural activities under stimulus control. So all of these things, you know, we'd be much better off with the people investigating these knew a little bit more about the fundamental uh, behavior science, which they typically do not. Yeah, we can make that statement a lot, it seems to me. But it it really is, I think, because I've always said that we create our own realities. It's how we respond to a set of conditions, not the set of conditions. Yeah. And that I think what you have been talking about really contributes to an understanding of that. that I hope so. <laughs> this actually it's on my latest mission to I may even write a paper on this topic. I was I I I have been putting it off for a long time because when you write a paper, you've got to go into excruciating detail and references yes. and descriptions and it's you know it's a real chore. And so the response effort <laughs> versus <laughs> the outcome of the eight people who will read it. <laughs> but at least it's there somewhere so someone can reference it. But maybe it also lives in these podcasts, so that may make it a little easier to do, too. Yes. <laughs> and we, we have a few more than eight people who will be listening to it. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that, that's, that's all to the good. And they can be all scratching their heads going, but, but, but my horse has consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. and we can have the podcast where we're all going, well, Joe <laughs> just doesn't, the question he just doesn't is, understand horses. <laughs> And I, and I would say that the con people don't have consciousness. They experience consciousness as a function of being able to describe themselves acting in their environment. Okay. And so, the, so and, and I think that's why all the neuroscientists haven't been able to find consciousness yet, because they're looking in the wrong spot. <laughs> where, yeah, did the, where did the, the mirror studies come into this? You know, where you're, the, the individual is looking at themselves in a mirror and they've got a spot on them and they indicate the spot on their forehead. Where do those fit into this? Well, you know, there's been experimental work with pigeons on that. And pigeons, yes, yes, pigeons I do know. To it, right? Yep. And it's, it's just a series of component repertoires that come together under the right environmental conditions to produce that type of responding. 
So the pigeon is taught to locate things in the, but through reflection, but not a spot on itself. Right. It locates other things in the room and so on. So it picks a dot on the wall of the chamber, let's say, or in different parts of the chamber using a mirror. And it then with no mirror there, mirror covered, it's taught to peck itself for a dot. And then it's put a little bib is put on the pigeon. And the dot is put right under the bib. So if the animal lowers its head to look at itself, can't see the, pigeon, the dot. It covers the dot. Right. It covers the dot. It can't, so you can't see it. So you do that, you put the dot on the pigeon, put the bib on, you put them in the chamber by itself. No, move around something. You don't see them pecking themselves. Right? And cover the mirror. The pigeon now looks at the mirror, sees the dot, reaches down, pecks where the point in the bib where the dot is. And so it's just the, the interconnection of those repertoires, given those component histories. It doesn't show any type of self-awareness. You, you could get this in any animal. The, the animals that it's difficult in getting it to are the ones that won't hold still in front of a mirror long enough to train it. <laughs> like some monkeys just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And this is one of the reasons they don't get it in monkeys as often, because they won't sit in front of the mirror and train it. So you have to actually teach them to sit in front of a mirror. You just can't put it out there and say, oh, look, they don't respond to it. Right. <laughs> they, right. So, you know, they're they just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Where chimps and some of the other ones, they'll sit there. And so you don't have to train them to sit there. That's the component they leave out of the monkey studies. And so you, know, you, you have to teach them to... Now, animals who like have used reflections from rivers and lakes and, and, and bird feeders and so on to see certain things, they're easily taught to do these types of stuff. And and utilize these. So the other animals are, you have to give them that history. So if we just ask the questions in the right way, and set up the environmental contingencies, give them the repertoire that's needed, we can, can just about get anything you want. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's limited to the creativity of the investigator. Yes. Because you have to look at how the organism responds to their world. You know, oftentimes investigators try to set up the world for the animals as though they're in their world, the investigator's world. Right, right. Actually, you know, all right, I'm in the animal's world, right? <laughs> like many pigeon experiments, I can remember one where they had that pigeons use different search strategies and looking through stimuli than humans do and so on and so forth. Well, a guy said, really? Um, what happens if we make the stimuli really small? Because pigeons have to turn a little head and bend down and look. And, and for the stimulus has to fall completely into the field of vision, it has to be tiny. So he made a little oscilloscope with E's and F's floating around on this oscilloscope. And the question for the bird was, it had to find the E out of this capital E from these F's. No problem if they were small. Large problem if they were large. Large, yeah. Because you know, all they're looking at is one part of the stimulus set. They can't respond to the whole E or the whole F. So sometimes we have to stop and be a little 
creative and say, wait, what is, what's actually falling into the visual field of this pigeon? Or no, that, that's like the uh, eyesight of vultures, which is just incredibly, incredibly acute. Right. Uh, they can see miles away what they need to yeah. see. And yet they run into wind turbines. Yeah. How can an animal that can see with such acuity and over such great distances collide into a wind turbine? Well, it turns yeah. out that they they have a blind spot and that when they are soaring, they don't need to see what's in front of them because they're, exactly. you know, they're way up in the sky, and but they need to see what's on the ground. So they are looking down, and what is directly in front of them is in their blind spot. Right. So they right. run into wind turbines. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Well, they got the fangled wind turbines coming up now that don't have the spinning blades that spin like an, a like a, a cylinder. Yeah. That's going to be much better for the birdies. So that's good news. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think uh, that was a really great afternoon, and I thank you immensely. And I think you've given people lots to lots to puzzle over. And all right, so you know it's not the typical horse or animal training type of dialogue, but hopefully your listeners will find it interesting. Well, I found it interesting. So thank you very, very, very much. Thank you. Right. And you both again. Yes. And take care. Have a great holiday coming. Up. You too. Thank you for joining us. If this was the first time you listened to an Equosity podcast, you may be wondering, where are the horses? I'm going to leave it up to each of you to find the connections back to horses that are meaningful to you. In terms of what somebody else is experiencing, whether that's another person or a horse or some other kind of animal, I can't know what it's like to be a horse. But when I look into my horse's eyes, I can't help but believe that a very aware individual is looking back at me. If we create our own reality, well then why not create that one? Certainly that sits at the core of the training choices that I make. And those of you who are regular listeners of these Equosity podcasts will know that from the many conversations that we've had. And if you're familiar with my books and DVDs and online courses, et cetera, et cetera, you'll also know that that's very much at the core of my training. And speaking of books and podcasts and so on, this podcast is coming out in December. So of course, I'm going to remind you about my new books. You know by now what I'm going to say. Modern horse training will make a great gift for your horse-loving friends. And if you have young readers, there's my new children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. You can order them through Amazon or through my website, theclickercenter.com. We're coming up to the end of the year, and certainly when you order the books, that's a great way to say thank you for another year of podcasts. And since we're coming up to the end of December, I should let you know about some of the things that will be happening in January. In January, I'm going to be presenting at two online conferences. For those of you in Scandinavia, on January 5th, 
I'll be presenting at the BHIS conference. And January 26th through 28th, I'll be part of the Clicker Expo Live. And for me this year, a very special treat and a very real honor is that my new book, Modern Horse Training, is being featured in the Expo's Book Nook presentation. Ken Ramirez will be monitoring that. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing what he has to say about my new book. If you haven't signed up for the Expo, I believe there are still a few places left. So go to clickertraining.com to register or go to Clicker Expo to register. Both, both will get you there. So have a wonderful holiday order lots and lots of copies of my new books and have fun with your training and have fun with your horses. Music